Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, November 24th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. So it's Black Friday. You want to know my Black Friday tradition? Not shopping. I've faithfully maintained this tradition for the most part of 56 years. Now, I do think my mom and my grandmother drug me out once or twice when I was a kid because it was a big deal to them, the whole Black Friday thing. Like They got up super early, went out to breakfast, and then went shopping. And I think there were maybe a couple of times that I couldn't get out of it. But insofar as it's been up to me, I've not done the Black Friday thing. Now, I'm sure I might have missed out on some deals here and there, but honestly, I think it's a pretty good trade-off for my sanity. I don't know, you know, does anybody really do Black Friday anymore? I mean, it seems like we've been having Black Friday for like a month. It's a function of Christmas mission creep. I'm not going to lie, it annoys me a little bit. I love Thanksgiving, and it irks me that we're basically just phasing it out. I posted on Facebook uh, this week that the war on Christmas can't end until its illegal occupation of November ends. I mean, at least the first three weeks of November. I'm okay with Christmas stuff after Thanksgiving. In fact, today is the day that I will typically start listening to Christmas music, and our Christmas tree will probably go up this weekend. So it's not like I'm a bah humbug Scrooge. I just like Thanksgiving, and I think we should let Thanksgiving have its place and let Christmas have its place. But, you know, that's that's me. What do I know, right? Anyway, maybe this is just a function of me getting old and curmudgeon and set in my ways, but I like things the way they were. And even though I don't really partake in Black Friday, I kind of miss it. Actually being on Friday, after Thanksgiving. So here's a little trivia for you. Do you know why they call it Black Friday? I'm going to tell you why. It's because it's an awful day. That's why. And I can confirm this from experience because even though I don't go out and do the Black Friday shopping, I have worked retail on Black Friday. In fact, I worked part-time at Toys R Us back in the mid-1990s when I was unsuccessfully trying to make a living being a musician. Do you remember the Power Ranger craze? I personally witnessed and helped break up a fight between two women in a Toys R Us aisle who were fighting over the last of that season's must-have Ranger. Like, hair-pulling the whole nine yards. Now, you've probably heard that they call it Black Friday because it traditionally has been thought to be the busiest shopping day of the year, and sales on the day after Thanksgiving typically got retailers out of the red and into the black financially for the first time during the year. But this is pretty much propaganda put out by the retail industry because they didn't want negative connotations attached to what was once one of the most important shopping days of the year. Now, obviously, the importance of Black Friday has waned. I mean, these days, it's really more about the entire holiday shopping season that runs from, like, October through the end of the year. 
In fact, as I understand it, Black Friday isn't even the busiest shopping day anymore. The Saturday before Christmas is generally the biggest sales day of the year for retailers. And of course, a lot of it shifted online at this point. And uh, I'm sure you're aware uh, there's all kinds of, of online specials that were running long before Black Friday. But why why really is it called Black Friday? Well, interestingly, the very first reference to the getting out of the red uh, economic explanation for Black Friday anybody can find was in the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1981. And... Um, I was Googling around to confirm this, and I ran across a 1985 Philadelphia Inquirer story that I honestly found it kind of amusing. But it highlights how people in the retail sector were desperately trying to rebrand Black Friday to get away from the actual reason people started calling it Black Friday that I'm going to tell you here in a second. Um, I'm just going to read this straight from this 1985 story. Quote, the caller wanted to know about retail sales at Hess's department store in Allentown on Black Friday. But the question touched a sensitive nerve for Erwin Greenberg, chairman of the chain. Quote, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard, snapped Greenberg. Retail sales? No, he steamed the term Black Friday. Black Friday is a phrase that's sinful and disgusting, a perturbed Greenberg said. He really took his Black Friday seriously. He went on, he said, why would anyone call a day when everyone is happy and has smiles on their faces Black Friday, he asked. I don't think that dude was ever actually in one of his stores on Black Friday. Based on my experience working at Toys R Us, people were not typically happy and smiling. Uh, like I said, they were fighting in the aisles. Um, but anyway, the earliest known use of the term Black Friday predates the Inquirer article by three decades. The term was, as best we can determine, used in a journal, Factory Management and Maintenance, back in 1951, and it was referring to workers calling in sick the day after Thanksgiving. And that's about the same time cops in Philadelphia started using Black Friday and Black Saturday to describe the crowds and traffic congestion as the Christmas shopping season kicked off uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving. You notice that Philadelphia keeps popping up in this story. Now, no disrespect to any Philly folks that are listening, but I've seen your city. I understand the, uh, the issue. Anyway. A 1961, or in 1961, a public relations expert recommended rebranding the days Big Friday and Big Saturday, and that went nowhere because it's dumb. Um, the New York Times started using Black Friday to describe the busiest shopping and traffic day back in 1975. You'll notice that traffic is also a reoccurring theme uh, here. So, really, when you get down to it, it's Black Friday because it's an awful day. There's people fighting in the aisles, and there's a lot of traffic, and it's miserable to get out. So, as you can tell, this show, this Friday Gold Wrap, is going to be a little bit different. I don't take a lot of time off, so I'm jumping on the opportunity to string together four straight days of sleeping in. But... I didn't want to just skip the podcast. I mean, you need something to listen to if you're out there sitting in traffic. So I'm actually recording this uh, a few days ahead of Friday. And um, 
In the spirit of the season, I'm going to share a little Thanksgiving history and explain how socialism very nearly wiped out the pilgrims. Like we never almost or we almost didn't have Thanksgiving. I actually told this story last year, so if you're a regular long-time listener, it's going to be kind of familiar. But I think the story's worth repeating. Uh, We can't repeat this enough, and and maybe this would be a great issue for you to go out and share with some folks that maybe normally wouldn't listen to, you know, a podcast about investing or gold. Uh, Just tell them it's a it's a Thanksgiving story that they did not learn in school in school because every word of this is true, and. You know, I think we should take every opportunity we can to debunk the happy, smiley, feel-good narrative that surrounds socialism. You know, the one where everyone is happy and sharing stuff. Because the real story mostly involves starving. But before I get into the real Thanksgiving story, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that gold took another run at $2,000 an ounce this week, uh, on Tuesday specifically. It actually broached that level for a while, but once again could not hold above that significant resistance level. Uh, The price peaked around $2,003 on Tuesday. And then by close on Wednesday, it was back down around 1989 as dollar strength took back over. Now, a big factor in this run-up was dollar weakness and, of course, the growing belief that the inflation war is over. As I've been saying, it's not. I'm not going to get into all of that in this show. You can listen to the past couple of shows and you'll understand exactly why I'm saying that uh, the inflation fight isn't over. Um You know, and ironically, the general public doesn't seem to think it's over either. The uh, University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Survey charted yet another big jump in inflation expectations in uh, in November. So uh, people out there are expecting inflation to remain sticky and persistent. And, uh, you know, I imagine that's probably a function of the fact that no matter what the CPI says, we all know the cost of things is still going way up. Um, I think there's a a growing distrust in uh, the whole CPI thing because we keep hearing them say one thing and our experience is another. And I mentioned last week, you know, just how wonky the CPI formula is. And we've talked about this before on the show, the fact that they've, uh, they've, they've reconstructed the formula in order to ensure that it kind of understates rising prices. And I've talked before about uh, the way they calculate shelter costs and how uh, basically, they're just doing surveys and and people are guessing. And this week, I wrote another article on uh, the way that they have um, tweaked and messed with the health insurance formula. Did you know that if you look back over the last year, the CPI claims that health insurance has dropped like 37% in the, uh, the the last year, uh, this this month was the first time it went up, and that's just because they they've tweaked the formula. And I wrote an article that explains the whole thing. But just yet another reason not to trust these government numbers. I'll I'll link to that article on the show notes page. Um, I also wrote a couple of articles this week that chronicle the pain that people are feeling out there on Main Street. Uh, one of them chronicles my experience with shrinkflation. Uh, if you've never heard that term before, I'll explain it real quick. So, inflation 
driven prices when they're rising, you know, they don't just hit consumers. In fact, they typically impact producers first. So the cost of materials, the cost of labor, the cost of equipment goes up. Companies start to feel the pinch and eventually they pass the cost on to their customers. But I mean, raising prices is bad for business, right? So sometimes companies will find other sneaky ways to cut costs. They'll shrink the size of packages or just put less stuff in the same size box. Uh, so while the price stays the same, you get less of the product. That's shrinkflation. Um, if you check out the article, I'll give you some real life examples, uh, and I'll link to that in the show notes page as well. But yeah, it, it, you're, it's it's the same thing is inflation, right? In, in terms of your pocketbook, you're paying the same, but you're getting less. It's a, a decrease in the purchasing power of your dollars. And then the second story that I'll link to is about how more and more people are tapping into their retirements to pay bills. And that's because the American consumer is oh so resilient, right? So check all of that out uh, on the show notes page and um yeah. Any rate, I think until something breaks in this economy, and it will, I've talked about this ad nauseum on the show, I expect gold and silver to remain relatively range bound. And that means you still have buying opportunities, but the day is coming when it's going to make that run at 2000 and it's going to stick. So um, it's just a matter of time. Um, okay, so let's talk about the real history of the pilgrims. And I'm certain they did not teach you this in school. Now, this isn't some kind of revisionism to fit my political agenda. In fact, the story you learned is the revisionism, right? The whole happy clappy, uh, the pilgrims got help from the Indians and they raised food and had Thanksgiving. The real story that I'm about to tell you comes straight from William Bradford's diaries. So, this is basically the experience of the pilgrims as recorded by their leader. And, you know, as I said, a lot of people seem to think that socialism is morally superior uh, because, you know, it's about sharing. And people will tell you that if we can just get the right people to run socialism, we'll all share equally in unimaginable abundance because it's nice. And I get it. This idea feels good. But you know what doesn't feel good? Being hungry. And that's ultimately what you get with socialism. I mean, sure, that's the extreme. But when you start down that path, it's ultimately where it's going, right? Starvation and gulags. The problem here, and it's a fundamental problem, feelings cannot trump economics. There are all kinds of reasons rooted in economic calculation that explain the failure of socialism. You need a price structure to effectively allocate scarce resources. I know it seems hard and cold, but it is what it is, right? Gravity is hard and cold if you jump off a cliff without a parachute. And nobody tries to do that just because the idea of being able to fly feels like it would be cool. And you know, you also have to account for human nature. Any system has to take into account human nature. And as it turns out, as much good as much as it sounds good in a children's book, people aren't big on sharing. 
Well, the Pilgrims experimented with socialism during their first couple of years in North America. It didn't end well. You'll be shocked to find out. In fact, it was actually a deadly experiment. And again, as it turns out, you, you just can't ignore economics and human nature any more than you can ignore gravity. But socialism does sound good on paper, right? I mean, we're all going to own everything together. We're all going to take care of each other, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. We're going to have equality. Everybody likes equality. It all sounds so nice. And we all want to be nice, right? People are emotionally drawn to socialism because it sounds so good. It sounds fair. It sounds nice. But you know what's not nice? Corpses. And that's exactly what the pilgrims got when they took their stab at socialism. Most Americans have no idea that the Plymouth Colony was originally an experiment in socialist utopianism. And were it not for a complete 180 a couple of years into the project, we probably wouldn't have enjoyed the bountiful feasts most of us uh, indulged in yesterday. There would have been no Thanksgiving because there would have been nobody left to give thanks. So, the Pilgrims arrived in Massachusetts on November 11th, 1620, and they placed all of their food and their provisions in a common store. Now, these folks were forward thinkers, right? They didn't even have Marx's uh, scribblings to appeal to. Uh, But they set things up on this socialist principle from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And everything was owned in common. So things got off to a bad start in the new in the uh, new world. Conditions were miserable, um, as William Bradford described them. This is from his diary. That which was most sad and lamentable was that in two or three months' time, half of their company died, especially in January and February, being the depth of winter, and wanting houses and other comforts, being infected with scurvy and other diseases. So as there died sometimes two or three a day in the aforesaid time, that of 100 and odd persons, scarce 50 remained." Now, the Pilgrims' initial struggles didn't really have anything to do with socialism. They just had the misfortune of landing in Massachusetts at the onset of winter. Uh, If you live in New England, you understand their pain. It's precisely why I live in Florida. But even after their first summer, things didn't improve a, uh, a whole lot. The following fall, the Pilgrims harvested their crops, and again, they all went into a common store. Now, It was nice, right? No greed. Nobody got any more than they should. Of course, nobody was getting much of anything at all, but still, they had to feel good about themselves, right? Because after all, the system was fair. So, in November, a year later, the ship Fortune arrived with um, more than 30 new settlers. Most of them were young men. So, More manpower was welcome, but according to accounts, they brought, quote, not so much as a biscuit cake with them. Now, I'm just going to pause here and suggest that maybe that wasn't the best plan. You know, maybe if you're going to go to the new world, maybe you should take some stuff with you, take some food. But no, they didn't. But fortunately, 
The Pilgrims did have a meager food supply in their common store. The problem was now they had even more mouths to feed. So the future looked bleak as food supplies ran out and the planned socialist community faced starvation yet again. So then the following year, the harvest was poor, this despite the added manpower. Nevertheless, the pilgrims again put their meager harvest in a common store because, you know, it's going to work this time. And it didn't. (laughs) That winter, they starved again. So the colonists were basically learning economics the hard way, right? Richard Grant, in his book, The Incredible Bread Machine, wrote this. For two years, the pilgrims faithfully practiced communal ownership of the means of production, and for two years, nearly starved to death, rationed at times to, quote, but a quarter of a pound of bread a day to each person. Governor Bradford wrote that famine must still ensue the next year also, if not some way prevented. And he described how the colonists finally decided to introduce private property. Here's what Bradford wrote. Uh, They began to think how they might raise as much corn as they could and obtain a better crop than they had done, that they might not still thus languish in misery. In 1623, after much debate of things, the governor, with advice from the chiefest among them, gave way that they should set down every man for his own and to trust themselves, so assigned to every family a parcel of land. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use, and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability, whom to have compelled would have been thought a great tyranny and oppression." Reflecting on the experience of the previous two years, Bradford goes on to describe the folly of communal ownership. Quote, The experience that was had in this common course and condition, tried sundry years, and that amongst godly and sober men may well invent the vanity of that conceit of Plato and other ancients, applauded by some of later times, that the taking away of property and bringing in community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For this community, so far as it was, was found to breed much confusion and discontent, and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. For the young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong or man of parts had no more indivision of victory duels, and cloths than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. Whoa! Mind blown! Some people resented doing all the work, and so they didn't work as hard when they weren't going to directly benefit. I'm shocked! So, actually, not shocking at all, right? It's human nature, and we all know it. So, basically, when people were working for the common good, you know, working for the community, they didn't work as hard because they didn't see any direct benefit. When they were given their own parcel of land and told they got to keep what they grew, well, then they were industrious and they were excited about working. 
That's just human nature. You know, we can lament the fact that they couldn't cooperate and make it work. We can say it shouldn't be that way. We can finger point and talk about greed. We can get all holier than now and say, we wouldn't act that way. In other words, we're lying. But people, they're just going to be people, right? Here's the harsh truth. Good intentions and feel-good policies cannot trump basic economics. You can dream of unicorns. You can dream of lollipops all day long. It will not change reality. Scarcity, human behavior, incentives. The experience of the pilgrims vividly demonstrates basic economic principles. We are motivated and driven by self-interest. We are going to work the hardest when we know we can benefit. And that's why free markets work. Because I'm going to work my butt off to produce as much as I can because it's going to benefit me. Now, Along the way, it's going to benefit everybody else, right? Because there was more corn to go around. And if I'm producing more corn, well, you know, maybe I can trade that with my neighbor who's good at making shoes. That's the basis of free market economics. But when everybody's just supposed to be working for the whole collective, it just doesn't work. Sorry, it doesn't. Good intentions can't overpower the cold, hard reality of economic principles. They never have, and they never will. So, that's a little food for thought on uh, this Black Friday, this Thanksgiving week. Um, yeah, that pun was intended, food for thought, because, you know, food. Of course, you know, if you're probably still stuffed from yesterday, so um, you may not want food, but... Hopefully, that little story is, is a good reminder, and, and, and maybe it'll help people understand why all of this intervention and, and government trying to run everything just doesn't work. You need to let people benefit themselves, and it's going to benefit everybody. So, I hope you have a pleasant Black Friday. Now, personally, I will be staying safely ensconced in my house, probably watching football and uh, uh, maybe doing some Christmas decorating. But even if you're like me and your tradition is to stay home on Black Friday, you know, you can still shop for physical gold and silver today from the comfort of your couch. Uh, silver, gold coins. Might make a good Christmas present for somebody. This is a great time to call Shift Gold, talk to a precious metal specialist, dial 1-888-GOLD-160. Or, if you don't want to talk on the phone, you can just email info at shiftgold.com. Or if you want to chat online, you can do that as well. Just go to shiftgold.com. You can click on the show note or on the uh, Getting Started tab, and uh, you can chat with a precious metal specialist right there. Uh, they're great. I say this every time. They're going to help you figure out how precious metals can fit into your personal investment strategy. After all, we all have different uh, goals, different levels of risk, different things that we're trying to accomplish for ourselves financially. But I guarantee you, precious metals has a place in your portfolio. Talk to the Shift Gold uh, folks today. And with that, we're going to call it a gold wrap for this week. 
You can get more details on all of the stories that I've talked about today and more. And of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com slash news. And if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Ship Gold YouTube channel, and more. Links to all of that are on the show notes page along with links to our social media channels. Give us a follow. Please smash the like button on uh, on this episode of the podcast. It helps the algorithms, helps get out to more people. And um, I hope you have a great rest of the holiday. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. And I'll be back again to talk to you next week.